0: The Christian who will learn the Bible and apply the Bible, even in these wicked days that will proceed from bad to worse, God says he can get holier and holier, that he can live more pure in spite of the environment, that he can be adequate for every single good work.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogie senior pastor of community bible church of buford south carolina one of the most familiar passages in the bible is that of second timothy 3:16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by god and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of god may be adequate equipped for every good work as we continue our study of the book of second timothy Pastor Berge takes an in-depth look at this passage today and how we can apply it to our own lives.
0: Now these words, inspired by God in the New American Standard, three words, five words in the King James, given by inspiration of God, is actually just one word in the Greek New Testament, theopneustos, literally, God breathed. Scripture is the literal breath of Almighty God. Just as my voice is my breath coming from my diaphragm, out of my lungs, over my larynx, through my voice box, articulated by my tongue, lips, and teeth, you are hearing this morning what is Carl breathed. Even so, the Bible is the very breath of God as if God had a voice box and lips. Scripture originated in the mind of God and was communicated by God's mouth, by God's breath or spirit inspiration, theopneustos, God-breathed, does not mean that God breathed into the Bible life. That is, it was dead and he had to give it life. Nor does it mean, for that matter, that God breathed into the human authors of Scripture. Now, God worked in those human authors. They were brought alongside, Peter said. They were, in one sense, moved by the Spirit of God. But inspiration, uh, the word theopneustos, literally means breathed out. Now, you can get technical here. The Latin derivative of our word inspiration literally means to breathe into. But understand, God did not breathe into the writings or the writings. What was written was God breathing out out of his own mouth the very word of God. And so very often the prophets would write, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so it is entirely appropriate to refer to the Bible as the word of God because God spoke it. It originated in his mind. It's spoken through his mouth and he uses as instruments to communicate it human vessels as they recorded scripture. And that's where many people say, well, that's the problem. I believe it originated in the mind and heart and will of God, but because he wrote through men, sinful men, and since we're all sinful, the final product is fallible. Listen, when these men wrote the Bible, they did not suspend their human faculties, but understand God in his sovereignty and providence overrode their fallibilities such that the final product is a book without any mistakes. Now, I have been studying this, as I've told you in the opening part of this sermon, for almost 30 years, and I have not yet found a single contradiction or mistake anywhere in Holy Scripture. I've been privileged of God to learn the Hebrew and the Greek of the New Testaments. I've read it in a multiplicity of English translations. And when people say to me, ah, the Bible, why should I believe it? It's full of contradictions. I will quickly hand them mine and say, show me one. Because I have not found one yet. No, the Bible is God's word. Now understand, God did not mechanically dictate the Bible. He didn't say, Paul, take a letter. And Paul sat there and and, uh, wrote it down. No, as you read the Apostles... As you read the prophets, as you read their praises, their praises, their instruction, their corrections, you can see their personalities. You read Daniel, say, yeah, that's Daniel the prophet, all right. You read Peter, you say, oh, that's definitely Peter. You read Paul, yep, that's his vocabulary, that's his style of writing, that's definitely Paul. And the more you read and study these men, they become almost like your friends. I feel like I know the Apostle Paul so well that when I meet him in heaven, it won't be a shock because his heart comes through scripture. God uses his personality. It's kind of like Scott, who's up here in that seat every Sunday. I've never seen a man play so many different kinds of instruments that he can play. And each instrument, when it's played, whether it's blown or strong or shaken or whatever he's doing, is, expresses its own unique personality as an instrument. But it's the same man working through each one. Even so, God uses various men, various personalities, and through it all, God delivers his message. So the message is spoken by human authors, and it is as if God were delivering it himself using their personality and writing style. And so the scripture in no way is diminished, nor is it Their personalities in no way are diminished, nor in any way is the Scripture fallible because God superintended the process. And so the end product is an infallible, inerrant Bible. And that's what Paul is teaching here. He says, notice, all Scripture is inspired. All. Underscore that in your thinking. It's what we call verbal plenary inspiration, an important theological term like the word Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's taught in the Bible. The words verbal plenary inspiration aren't found in the Bible, but the teaching of verbal plenary inspiration is. We do not believe in what some refer to as partial inspiration. We do not believe that the Bible is inspired in certain parts but that all of the scripture, as Paul says here, is God Breathe. Paul is affirming that the Bible is fully inspired and not partially inspired, that it is all God's Word. And you need to understand that because many today will say that the Bible is inspired in parts, that it's not completely inspired, but when they teach that, they're contradicting Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. You've got to be careful. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Some preacher can say, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but he means so much different from what the scriptures teach. And that's why we have these major denominations under the umbrella of professing Christendom that are now endorsing the homosexual lifestyle, that are arguing for the ordination of women to be pastors, who teach theistic evolution, and a host of other heresies Friend, that is wrong, and it's flavored by the fact that they believe not in full inspiration, but partial inspiration. Nor do we mean, when we say all Scripture is inspired, that it was progressively inspired, that it's progressive inspiration. Now, it is true that God revealed Himself in the plan of redemption progressively, He unfolded the plan of redemption through the prophets. And we can learn a whole lot more, though the gospel is entirely in the Old Testament, we can learn a whole lot more from Paul's description of the gospel in Romans than maybe what Isaiah gives us in his prophetic writings. But understand, progressive revelation does not mean progressive inspiration. The Old Testament is just as inspired by God as is the New Testament. Now, some parts may not be as inspiring to you as other parts. I mean, if I were in a desert island, I'd rather have the book of Romans than say the book of Leviticus. But understand Leviticus 3.16 is no less inspired than John 3.16, and Genesis one is no less inspired than Genesis 22.21. And so when we speak of plenary inspiration, we are affirming not that the Bible is partially inspired or progressively inspired, but that it is completely, fully inspired, Plenary, from the Latin word plenus, full. We believe in a full inspiration. Verbal plenary, verbal, from the Latin that means word. That is historical orthodox Christianity has affirmed what the Bible says about itself, that a word-for-word inspiration was given by the very breath of God. Now, of course... There are people that tell us that God inspired the thoughts, that the general message of the Bible is inspired, but not all the actual words. And so all you need to be concerned about is the general thoughts. Friend, you cannot have thoughts without words any more than you can have mathematics without numbers. You change the numbers, you change the math. You change the words, you change the thoughts. True Bible-believing Christians believe what Christ taught, verbal, plenary inspiration. Our Lord said, "...man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." Likewise, in Matthew 5, he said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus taught that right down to the smallest Hebrew letter that looks like our English apostrophe, down to the smallest stroke of a pen that would be an equivalent to your crossing a T, that the scriptures were inspired. On the original parchments, every line, every sentence, every word, every point, every pen stroke, Every jot, every tittle, every single mark was placed there by the mind, will and breath of Almighty God. It is God's perfect, infallible, inspired word. Now if that was Jesus' view of inspiration, what my view, what should my view be? If by all He meant all? If by all Paul meant all? then you better have that as your definition of all. That all Scripture is inspired by God. And if you can't embrace that, your argument isn't with me. It's with the Lord God Almighty. God inspired it, and He inspired it perfectly, and God doesn't have bad breath. Now listen. Timothy, continuing the Scripture... Because it is able to lead people to salvation, it is inspired by God. Thirdly, the Scriptures are profitable. Look again in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four things specifically. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Paul shows how we can profit from Scripture as it relates to both our creed and our conduct. The Scriptures are profitable for instruction. That is what is right. They are profitable for reproof. That is what is not right. They are profitable for correction. That is how to get right. They are profitable for training in righteousness. That is how to stay right. Why? That so that the man of God may be adequate, complete, teleos, mentor, equipped for every good work. God wants you to become mature, complete, adequate, so that he can equip you to do every good work that he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So you better know the word of God. You need to know it. We need to live by it if we're ever going to be used of God. And the Christian who will learn the Bible and apply the Bible, even in these wicked days that will proceed from bad to worse, God says he can get holier and holier that he can live more pure in spite of the environment, that he can be adequate for every single good work. But you must separate yourself from that which is false, and you must devote yourself to that which is true. He says again in verse 17, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, if you remember, in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11, Paul referred to Timothy... He said, O man of God, he gave him a very exclusive title that is used to prophets like Moses and Elijah and here in the New Testament of Pastor Timothy. Now, of course, the man of God, the pastor, his primary responsibility is to teach and refute and discipline and, and reform. But here, Paul is reminding us that any Christian, he uses the generic word anthropos, that a person, man, woman, Child, boy, girl, anyone who will give themselves the Holy Scripture and apply and continue in them as Timothy would, that they can embrace for themselves the title man of God, person of God. Moses. Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, David, and Timothy are those in the Bible who are given the distinctive title, man of God. And as you look at each of these men's lives, you will discover that there was a common denominator, and that is they were men who were devoted to God's book, the Bible. Now, let me leave you this morning with three applications that keep coming back to me that I want us to consider pray about and apply. Number one, I am reminded from this passage that the scriptures are sufficient for godly living. The scriptures are sufficient for godly living. The week before last, I was coming home late one night and I was listening to a national radio talk show on our station on a newly released book. It's written by a pastor who went to the same seminar I went to and The theme of the hour was the need for a return to expository Bible preaching like we do here every Sunday. Just open the Bible and teach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, I know for a large number of you, this is the only church that you've ever been a part of because you found Jesus Christ here as your Savior. And whether you know it or not, There is a famine in the land today for the Word of God, and the famine is so great that it is opening up Bible-believing churches to all kinds of error and spiritual sicknesses. And as I listened, I thought, you know, this guy's really not being affirmed by the host. I thought, Lord, get me on. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to go on, so I punched in the numbers, and man, the phone rang. You know, you usually dial these national talk shows, and it's busy. Well, the phone rang, and... I spoke to the lady for a second. She said, I'll put you on hold for just a moment. She put me on hold, and I waited about a minute, and then she hung up, or I got disconnected, whatever happened. So I hit redial, and it came up again, and she answered. She said, are you the one that was just here? And I said, yes. She said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Now, what is your question or comment? And I gave it to her, and then she said, she took my number. We'll call you back in a few moments. And sure enough, they called me back about five minutes later. They told me I was on the air. And I gave my comment. I said, Pastor, I agree with you. I affirm you. There is a tremendous need today for pastors who will open the Word of God, who will preach it, who will teach it because we live in a day when so many churches have bought the seeker-sensitive model, where we're told on Sunday morning we ought to entertain the lost, we ought to uh, dumb down the Scriptures, we shouldn't teach them because we'll turn off the unbeliever and not have the opportunity to win them. He said, well, don't you think there are some facets of the seeker-sensitive movement that we should embrace and include in our services? And I said, for the most part, no, no. Why? Because those things are usurping and replacing what God has called His men to do as God's people worship through the Word of God. And so uh, he cut me off, and that was the end of that conversation. And, but, you know, I thought about it. I was driving home. I went to a seminary. The motto of the seminary was preach the Word. And here we are on a Christian network. And you've got a pastor who for an hour and a lot of disagreement who has to defend the need for expository preaching when that is the plain thing that God says a preacher is supposed to do. I think, why does he even have to defend it today? Because we are so far from traditional expository teaching of the word of God. Listen, the devil is so slick, he's so smart. He knew that he could not get true evangelical churches to deny the inerrancy of the Scripture. So he took a different stature, and that is he's got them to question the sufficiency of the Scripture. That people need something else. And you give them something else long enough, and sooner or later, we will become like England. I shared on that radio show my concern that we would become like the United Kingdom. It happened in Spurgeon's day. They began to dumb down the need for expository preaching to bring in entertainment into the church, and Spurgeon said if it continues, it will kill a church in in 50 years. He was wrong. It happened in 25 years, and today less than 10% of the people in the United Kingdom even go to church, much less Bible-believing churches. Listen, I learned from this passage of Scripture, the Scriptures are sufficient. They're adequate to make you complete and equipped for every single good work. Second, I am reminded that if we want godly children, we must teach them the scriptures. Timothy was taught from childhood. In Calvin's words, he sucked up godliness in his mother's milk. Dads and moms, assuming you're both believers, if you're a single parent or only one believer in the house, teach your children the word of God. Now, Deuteronomy 6 teaches that you are to do it in a formal way, but you're also to do it in the everyday opportunities of life. For you to do that successfully, of course, the Word of God must first be in your heart. You will never be able to teach your kids as you can or as you should unless you have a personal, regular, continual exposure to God's Word. If you think it's sufficient alone to teach them a little Bible story at night, you are wrong unless you get into the word of God for yourself you're going to miss literally tens of thousands of opportunities to take the truth of scripture and relate it to the everyday avenues of life But there needs to be a concerted, planned way in which you teach your children the Scripture. The children's Bible that I recommend to parents, it's called the Picture Bible. Now, I own about 20 or more now children's Bibles. But in the last two decades, this is the best one I've ever seen. Now, there are a lot of Bibles under this same title. This is the one that's put out on David C. Cook publications i don 't own any stock in the country, uh, company no vested interest, but I like it because it 's accurate. There are some children 's Bibles that are downright inaccurate i 've got one on my shelf It talks about Moses floating down on the river in a basket laughing he wasn 't laughing he was crying, he was crying, you know that. I've got other children's Bibles that are so King james a little child can't get anything out of it. Others go to the other end of the spectrum, and there's no content, just a bunch of pictures. What's good about this is it teaches them the Bible. Your children will get an overview of every major Bible story. I have a son at Liberty University, and it's amazing to him how many kids today, even out of Christian homes, do not know Bible stories. And so when the professor asked, how many are familiar with Elijah up in town? top of Mount Carmel. And two kids in the class raised their hands. You know, that's where we are today. Of course, Jeremy says, dad, I can see the pictures from the picture Bible because I brought it through his mind five times when he was a little boy, as I have by God's grace nearly with all my children. We've worn out two copies of this, but what I like about it is each section is keyed to the place where it's coming from the Bible. And so as they get older, we'll read it from here and then we'll read it from the regular Bible. And eventually we graduate graduate them into a normal, everyday, literal translation like the New American Standard. You need, in a very concerted way, to teach your children God's Word. And I've been blessed and encouraged by the fact that we have a Bible memory club known as Awana in this church. And if your kids aren't in it because you are too lazy on on Sunday night to bring them out. Friend, they're missing. They are missing an opportunity to get the truth of Holy Scripture into your, their hearts. As soon as that child is born, you need to surround him with prayer and eventually with the Word of God. You give them that opportunity because I want to tell you, a time will come when you won't have that opportunity anymore. It will slip, quickly slip through your fingers, but you nurse them in Holy Scripture. You let them in Calvin's words, suck up godliness through their mother's milk, get them into the Word of God, Because the word of God is in you, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Third, I am reminded, not only are the scriptures sufficient, not only if we want godly children, do we need to teach them the scriptures, both by precept and example. Third, I am reminded that if we live godly, we will be persecuted. Now, how many of you believe 2 Timothy 3, 12, and indeed all who are godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? Let me see your hands, okay, everyone. Now, don't raise your hand, but of those who lifted their hands, how many could say, well, I've been persecuted? Now, understand, the Bible says that if you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Now, either this verse is not true or you're not living godly. Being a witness for Jesus Christ not only by lifestyle, but by word, because God has commissioned you to do both, will involve not necessarily being tortured or put on a rack or beaten or stoned. In fact, it appears from the Sermon on the Mount that the bulk of the persecution that Christ described is what men will say of you. But you may be ostracized, you may be ridiculed, you may be spoken of as evil because you identify with Jesus Christ and His truth. Friend, if you like to be liked, you will never be used of God because if you like to be liked, you will end up following the culture instead of the dictates of God's Word. And parents, we need to prepare our children, especially this generation, to expect that they will be persecuted. Listen, if they don't drink the world's drink, if they don't uh, dress in modestly, if they choose to dress modestly and they don't let it all hang out like so many young people are doing today, if they don't listen to the world's rock music, if they don't fill their mind with the filthy sitcoms and TV shows and movies that this generation is feeding on, they're going to be considered Weird. They're going to have some standards and the devil will come and say, you must be weird. There must be something wrong with you. Friend, you need to prepare your kids for that because it will come in this day like we've never seen it before. And this world will scrutinize you. They will watch you. They'll look for just an opportunity for you to slip and fall. But understand... Being unpopular is an occupational hazard of being a Christian, of being a godly Christian who will be both in Christ and in the world. You will not be able to escape this world unblemished or unscathed, unbloodied if you live for Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All means all just like it means all Scripture. Now understand, God wants you He wants you to live a dedicated life for Him, but there will be a cost. Now, you may be here today, and you do not have the assurance that heaven is your home. You say, I'd like to go. I think I'd go. But you do not have the absolute promise in your heart that if Christ comes today, that He'll take you there. Friend, on the authority of this book, I would tell you that you need to be saved. On the authority of this book, I would tell you that God loves you. But your sin separates you from that love. But as Paul said, both Moses and the prophets foretold of this one, the Lord Jesus, who would come and suffer and bleed and die and in his own body on the cross take all of your sin and all of my sin and all of its punishment and God would raise him from the dead on the third day declaring to all men everywhere that they ought to repent and call upon his name. He said, whoever will call upon His name, will be saved. That is a promise from God. Whoever means whoever. Whoever will call upon His name will be saved. That is a God-breathed promise. And all that is left for you to do is to believe it. The only thing that separates you from heaven, some of you, is an act of faith. God has done it all. He's made a way. But you must come in faith and believe what God promised. He breathed it. Why don't you believe it? Let's stand together for prayer. Now, our Father, I thank you this morning for the privilege to open your holy word. And I pray, Father, today for someone who is here who has never genuinely, truly been saved from the penalty of their sin. Father, you said, because you did what you did on Golgotha, that whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Have you ever done that in simple faith? You say, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Then you haven't come in faith. Faith says, I believe what God said. I believe his word. But if you will in faith believe that God breathed holy scripture, God will save you today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Would you say today in faith, Lord Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection? Would you say that? Lord Jesus, save me. It is a trustworthy statement. It deserves our full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our Father, we thank you today for your word, which is alive, which is a lamp on our feet and a light on our path. Help us, O God, like Timothy, to continue in the sacred scripture. Help us, our Father to affirm with all of our hearts which you've written, help us to learn it, to know it, to be enmeshed in it, but with all of our hearts to obey it, that the life of Christ might be reflected through us, that he, above all else, be honored and glorified, the one whom we praise and love, and in whose name we pray, amen.
1: For a copy of today's message in its entirety, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and ask for program 2TM7, Standing Firm in the Book. It's available on CD or DVD, and can be downloaded from our website, searchthescriptures.org, or by using the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. All our resources are available for your review at our website and on our app, where you can find out more about the Search the Scriptures ministry and how you can become involved in it. The third chapter of 2 Timothy has dealt to a large extent with the difficult times that lie ahead. As Pastor Berge opens chapter 4 tomorrow, we'll see how to live during these difficult times. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.